Hi, Neil Warren here again, and welcome to another episode of the Happy Hour Harmonica podcast, with more interviews with some of the finest harmonica players around today. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and also check out the Spotify playlist where some of the tracks discussed during the interviews can be heard. A quick word from my sponsor now, the Lone Wolf Blues Company, makers of effects pedals, microphones and more, designed for harmonica. Remember, when you want control over your tone, you want Lone Wolf. Kim Wilson is without doubt one of the great harmonica players around today. He grew up within the vibrant music scene in California, learning his chops on the bandstand, which he hasn't got off since, touring extensively all his life. Kim's long-term band, The Fabulous Thunderbirds, has brought him commercial success, and he has also maintained his own dedicated blues band for many years. He leads from the front, and absolutely knows what it takes to deliver the blues to an audience, with his tough harmonica playing style. Hello, Kim Wilson. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. My pleasure. It's a real thrill to have you join me. I'm a big fan of yours and have been for many years, as I'm sure lots of other harmonica players listening are. You moved around quite a bit when you were young. So you're born in Detroit, in Michigan, yeah? Yes. I moved to uh, California. My dad worked for General Motors. He moved us out to the Santa Barbara area, California, in 1960. You know, I was in school until about 1974. I had started playing music in uh, 68 when I was still in high school, end of my senior year. It was fantastic, well, you know, at the beginning for me because I was able to get up on stage with so many different people. And I'd, I mean, literally, I'd only been playing a year and I was playing with Eddie Taylor and people like that, you know, Luther Tucker, High Tide Harris, Albert Collins, Lowell Fulson, Pee Wee Creighton, George Harmonica Smith, Johnny Shaw. I played with all those guys during my first three or four years of playing. You know, when, when we were in high school before I started playing, I had a bunch of friends who really loved blues music, and they took me to a lot of shows down in L.A., and that was a real eye-opener for me. Plus, I saw George Smith back then playing out in a park somewhere, and that blew my mind, too. You know, and I immediately I wanted to do it. There was another kid playing harmonica in high school. He was kind of my competition, and he wasn't, he wasn't very nice to me at first, so it was kind of my... It became my mission to kind of unseat this guy <laughs> and that's why i got good in a short period of time i'll tell you one quick story okay yeah cool and this is kind of this this is kind of the story of how i've met all these guys i had a band pretty much the whole time from the very very beginning you know and, and i never was without a band and then i'd have a weekend off well it just so happens that uh, george harmonica smith was playing at this club i was too young to get in but i had a fake ID and I got in the place and my buddy who got me on a lot of stages he saw me in the audience and so he comes up to me he was he was playing three songs and then he'd get down and George would would uh, get up on stage and his band would back him he comes up to me on the break he sees me in the audience and said look I want you to get up there instead of me on the next set I said uh, well I don't know <laughs> you know I was kind of checking it out 
And he said, no, you're, you're doing it. So I got up there. I was pretty nervous. I'd already played with a couple people, but so I get up there and I play two songs, get into the half, about halfway through the third song. And uh, here comes George just hopping up on the stage with me. He gets up there and I'm doing everything that he's doing. He was kind of a vaudevillian kind of guy. He would lay on his back and do crazy stuff. So I was kind of following him, all of his moves. He was making me do that. That was my beginning, the beginning of my friendship with George. When when George would take a break, he'd have each band member. I remember he did uh, "You Don't Love Me." And uh, he would let each band member down one at a time. So eventually it was just he and I up there. It was, it was, it was a great moment for me, you know. And, right. and he was How a very, did, very sweet guy. What did he say about your first performance on stage then when he got you up? You know, I asked him questions after I knew him for a little while. I came back because he, what he said was, I want you to finish out the week with me. And uh, the next time he came back, I was playing with him as well. So I guess he liked it. I mean, I was asking him questions. I didn't really get any kind of like training from him or anything, but I had already, I already, he was my hero back then. I, I knew about George before I knew about little Walter or, or, and I knew James Cotton also. I didn't meet him back then, but I knew George really before anybody. So it was a big, big thrill for me. And, uh, you know, I would ask him questions. Am, am I doing this right? Yeah, you're doing that right. I mean, he was more into like finding a good nickname for me. <laughs> and that didn't really work out very well. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what he called me, but I said, no, I think I'll stick to what I've got. <laughs> so he was very influential with the West Coast players, wasn't he? I think uh, and Rob Piazza also was uh, was heavily influenced by him yeah, as well. Yeah, Bill he? Clark. Yeah, he was. He was, uh, you know, he had a thing. And you can still hear his influence in, in my playing. I mean, uh I don't really play too much like him anymore, but I used to play very much like him. I still like to use octaves a lot. I think he's one of those slightly underrated players, isn't he? A lot of guys like yourself were heavily influenced by him, and a lot of people turn to Little Walter and Sonny Boy. But, but George Smith, uh, you know, a great player. You have musical parents, is that correct? Yeah, my dad was a singer. He sang on the radio. And uh, my mother was a pretty good singer as well. She sang in Baptist church, you know, she... Both my uh, both my grandfather and my uncle were deacons in the church, and she had a piano in there that she'd fool around with. They would sing at the house, and you know, my dad had talent. He was a, he was a good singer. Were they into blues music? They were into old music, you know, like let's say Bing Crosby or Sinatra. My dad was kind of a crooner like that. He was very influential in me involving myself in the fine arts. I was an art major in, in college. I was, I, I won a lot of awards at fine arts. When you were young as well, uh, you played trombone and guitar initially. I did. I played, uh, my, my folks got me lessons. I was in the, I was in the band. We had mandatory music class twice a week in, in Michigan. And, uh, one day, the music teacher comes in. And he says, uh, brings in a couple of horns. He picks me and this other kid out of the class, and he hands me a baritone horn and said, play it. 
So I played it. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't really that fond of, I never really liked a lot of rules. I didn't really get into reading music very much. I just fought it. But I had a good sound, and I was first chair immediately. And then I played guitar. I didn't really like strumming to whatever the tabs and reading music doing that either. I remember going up on stage and faking it. My mom was in the audience. <laughs> she didn't even know I was faking it. But uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing up there, and, and uh, I got away with that one. Now I, I, I enjoy fooling around with a guitar a little bit. But I always fought. I wasn't always an improvisational guy. I, I never really liked playing set pieces. Uh, it just, for some reason, even back then, it didn't thrill me. Were you singing back then? I, I was not singing. I, I started singing when I was when I first started playing in bands when I was seventeen, or a little a little before that, because I could sing before I could play, and that's really why I I was able to get in bands. Even though people say I could play back then, I really couldn't. You can't, no one wants just a harmonica player. So I was a singer. I knew that from, I was also a songwriter back then. I wrote songs. You know, it, the whole thing, the whole experience for me was just absolutely incredible. I got to tell you, I mean, being around these guys, them taking me under their wing, and they didn't have to be harmonica players. I was just thrilled. I mean, Eddie Taylor. That that was incredible. And then I would meet all these guys later on when I moved to Minnesota for a year. And then I would, uh, that was like in 1975 when I did that, about a year and a half. And uh, then I moved to Texas. But I I met Albert Collins up in Minnesota and I met him down in uh, Austin again, you know. And all these guys, I would kind of rekindle my friendships with them during these times. So you started playing in a blues band at high school, a senior school. Uh, you say you're about 17. Do you remember what first got you started playing the harmonica? You know, I just wanted to do it. I can't really tell you what got me going. I mean, I'm listening to people like George Smith and Big Walter back then. That was a pretty big inspiration. People were going to clubs all over the place and seeing unbelievable people playing in that area. I was going out there. I had my fake ID, like I said, and I was watching all these guys play going, I got to do that. So you probably saw live harmonica first, did you? No. Well, I kind of, kind of both at the same time, really. You know, I was listening to, I had that World Pacific record by George. which was a big, big, big influence on me. And then I had that first James Cotton record on Verve. That James Cotton record became the Bible for me. Because all these different types of material that he was doing, I said, well, hell, if it's good enough for him, it's certainly good enough for me. And it gave me an opportunity to go out. You know, back then, just like now, really, you had to get people dancing before you could throw a low-down blues on them, you know. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, that that kind of changed 
when we when we started playing in Austin and uh, people were dancing to like Jimmy Reed and that kind of stuff. I got to tell you also that Taj Mahal was a huge influence on me back then. And that kind of got me into the more contemporary side of things as well. Because Taj, he's, you know, I'm still a big Taj fan. He's an incredible soul. And he's got incredible soul. All those things mixed together, and then you got people like uh, Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band coming around, and you listen to the, all these things. I had a 16-year-old guitarist, he just passed away a couple of years ago, who could play uh, exactly like Buddy Guy on It's My Life, the live stuff. The whole experience, about the first three to five years of, of my life, it was just gangbusters, and I learned really quickly. Yeah, great time, and it sounds like you're in a really uh, creative environment. So you moved from California to Austin, Texas. I actually moved to Minnesota first. I lived in Minneapolis for about a year and a half. Yeah. And then about 75, I moved down to Texas. I had been down to visit. Jimmy had been up to visit me in Minneapolis, and we were talking, and I was ready to get out of the cold, you know. Plus, I'd run out of people to play with. So I I went down to... uh, I ended up flying down to Austin. That was the start of that. Yeah, yeah. so you, you met uh, Jimmy Vaughan, and that sort of led on to forming the, the Fabulous Thunderbirds in 1974. Yeah, then we went through our guys. You know, we had a lot of different people. And then you got a, a regular spot playing at Anton's Club. We would do Monday nights down there. And So that was the start of the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Is that the start really playing harmonica and singing as your career? Oh, no, no. It was my career from the beginning. I, I, you know, I tried to, I tried to work a day job. You know, I had dropped out of school and I, you know, I had these kind of menial jobs. And finally, I just, you know, I tried to do it. And I said, well, you know, I'm either going to be a musician or a wino. And that's going to be it. And I and luckily I ended up being a musician and a wino for a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> Muddy Waters was influential on you in the early days. I think, did he see you playing with the Fabulous Thunderbirds at the Anton's Club? Yeah. And what happened was we were opening up for Muddy. We would always open up for Muddy if, he, if we were in town. And we were in town at the beginning. We were in town all the time. Everybody kind of walked in like, oh, these guys, you know, like, oh, really? I mean, another bunch of guys like this. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of shocking for them to hear us on the first note. It kind of blew their minds. I mean, we there was a dressing room up above the stage at the old Antones and, uh, had a curtain on it, and we went into this first instrumental we would always do, and the curtain flew open, and there they were all just gawking at us. And, you know, Muddy was uh, a very, very great man to me. He was just a great man, period. He was royalty, you know. Uh, He still is royalty. He said some very great things about me. Yeah, he said you were the, the greatest harmonica player to come along since Little Walter. That's quite a compliment. That's quite a compliment. That's really, uh, (laughs) and of course it wasn't true, but it made me want it to be true, and I've worked my whole life. Did you play with Muddy? Did he he get you up to do a guest spot when he was playing in the club? Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, we had some incredible times. Uh, We had some incredible times, you know, 
that's when I met Jerry, of course, and Jerry was was one of my dear friends, and and people like Bob Margolin and and Willie and Fuzz and Pine Top and and uh, Guitar Junior, you know, they were uh, and Bob Margolin. I mentioned Bob Margolin and Bob Margolin, but it was a, just a big party. I mean, it was uh, it was incredible, and they came around a lot, and they'd stay for a week every time they'd come. Uh, we just had a ball, and, and I'd sit down with Muddy, just me and him, and we'd talk, you know, and it was, uh, he was an incredible man, and an incredibly, incredibly uh, generous and giving man. So I, I'm a massive fan of Muddy Water, and of course he had all the greatest harmonica players with him, so it's great to hear, hear you say that about him, because I, I, you know, I've read a, a couple of biographies, but yeah, it's great to hear that. It was a very, very dear person to me. And he was really like my musical father. Well, I was getting late on the evening, I feel like, like blowing my home. When I woke up this morning, all I had, I had was gone. You got to okay. play the, with his son Mud Morganfield on the album Pops uh, a few years ago, which which won an award for um, a, uh, a blues music award. So that that must have been uh, yeah. quite a thrill, being so close to Muddy and playing with his son. How was that? Wonderful. You know, the, the band was great. The, the music was great. I, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. I, you know, I think uh, Muddy's got a couple kids out there that are doing pretty good. Yeah. And I'm happy to see that. I'm happy to see that... Uh, you know, his name is still there. Yeah, Mud comes over to the UK quite regularly, so I've seen him play quite a few times, and it's great that he's, you know, carrying that music on and obviously doing a lot of his father's songs, so it's great to see. Back to the fabulous Thunderbirds then. So you released your first album with them in 1979, I think, so the, t- the title, uh, The Fabulous Thunderbirds, which was a fantastic album, and, and I've got some great harmonica classic songs on there, you know, Scratch My Back uh, is long time being one of my favorite harmonica songs. That, that was a fantastic album. Um, maybe talked about that album a little bit. Well, we, you know, we went in, we went to Summit Burnett Studios in Dallas, and uh, Bob Sullivan was the engineer. The first thing he did was come in and play Ride Him On Down by Eddie Taylor. And uh, we went, okay, we're going to like this guy. He started talking about James Burton, and that was the first time he'd ever seen a Fender solid body guitar. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Is when they first came out. So uh, he was a, a Bob was a great guy, and he was he you know everything was done to analog at that time. It was done to multi-track, but we had, everything was cut live. There wasn't much mixing to be done, and we cut everything. We cut forty songs in two days. We just kept, or for at least forty tracks anyway. We just kept the good stuff. That was pretty much it. It was five years though since you formed the band until you released the album. Uh, yeah. I mean, we were looking for a deal. There were lots of times, you know, when even after that record and and the subsequent 
Chrysalis, Tacoma Records. Uh, there were lots of times when I was going, what the hell am I going to do here? I mean, uh, I'm not sure if I can keep doing this, although I wasn't really ever going to quit. It, it, the work was sketchy, you know? It was sketchy. So were you still mainly around Austin playing you know, live gigs at that point, or were you touring before you released the album? Well, after we met Muddy, which was 70... That might have been 75, maybe 76. After we met Muddy, Muddy put the word out. <clears throat> so immediately, we were on the road. We were going to Maine, a lot a lot to New England at that time. I remember in 1978, we played the San Francisco Blues Festival, and we made a pretty big splash there. We, we had been working our way up. I think the reason why we had a hit record is because really all these people had been coming out to see us for years, and they finally, they all got on the same page and just bought the record. But we'd been playing and playing. I mean, we were doing 250, 300 days a year yeah. uh, on the road. And when we were home, we'd be playing. We'd be playing behind Eddie Taylor over at Antones or, you know, wherever. We had a, we had, we, our Monday night gig changed to the Rome Inn. That was an incredible gig. So... So I think that that five years before you probably uh, that's why that's such a great first album then because you guys were, must have been so tight and you know you had some great material after all that all that touring. Yeah, we played everything we knew basically. That, that's why it was so difficult to come up with material later on because we'd already done all of it, yeah. and so we had to work on. Uh, I was writing a lot of blues back then. That was cool. I, I got a lot of songs on those records. I'm very proud of those songs. You, I mean, you had some some commercial success with Tough Enough and Wrap It Up, so you had some sort of top forty hits with the with the uh, Fabulous Thunderbirds with those songs. Actually, uh, the Tough Enough was top ten. I think Wrap It Up went was forty, and there were other ones that were in the top one hundred. Uh, back then, you had uh, AOR Radio here in the states, and we so we had several top tens in the AOR. In so, the UK, we had uh, we had a a, a pretty big. Uh, kind of thing with uh, you ain't nothing but fine. So so the Fabulous Thunderbird style was quite a mixture, wasn't it? It was rock and rolly, blues, bits of Cajun music. So it, it was a bit more mainstream than than just pure blues, wasn't it? It was was that partly to to become, you know, more commercial and, you know, to looking for that sort of success or was that just the way the the band was naturally going or what sort of music it was playing? Well, you know, it was that first uh, cotton record was the Bible to me. I I I played in every band using that, that variation of material. Then we added a little rock and roll later on. It, I mean, at first, it was pretty much just all shuffles. But it didn't take too long. We started learning to scratch my back and things like that. And uh, stuff by Rockin' Sydney, stuff by uh, Lonnie Brooks, who was Guitar Junior, you know, on those other the records we learned from, like The Crawl and those kind of things. That kind of built up. And then... We had a couple of uh, British producers. We had uh, Nick Lowe on our last uh, Chrysalis record. And that kind of pushed things, that kind of moved things up a little bit. And then Dave Edmonds called. We went over to the UK, to, to London to record. That really was something special as far as just watching it. I think the band was maturing at that time. Yeah. And especially me think that maybe my singing was getting a little better maybe you know what people don't realize is that that record sat 
from about from about 1983 to about 1985, and we were looking for someone because the the, the original label that we recorded that for went bankrupt, and so those tapes sat there. So finally, you know, after going around and around, we went back to, to CBS Records, and Tony Martell said. I want to tell you guys, I think I can sell this. So which album? That's Tough Enough. Yeah, that's Tough Enough. So Dave Edmonds recorded that in England. But it sat there for quite a while. We didn't know if it was ever going to get released even. And uh, finally, you know, the beautiful thing about Tony Martell was he started his own label in the CBS Epic family. So we were able to access all of the people, all of the promotional people, everybody, and get kind of a taste of what the real business was like at that time. And, and to watch it climb the charts, it was a, it, that was also an incredible experience. We really almost kind of did it. And, and Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds had a huge play in this. They had a huge play in our, our con contemporary success and they were they were very very cool because they were real musicians who who loved real music and they attacked both those records with that attitude and we really didn't have to do anything too much different than our own kind of metamorphosis our own natural metamorphosis so you, you formed your own band in the 90s for the first time was that right yeah, i think that? it was 1990 and i had a manager at that time who was telling me, you know, harmonica really doesn't sell. I don't think you should be playing as much of it. And I went, okay, well, guess what? I'm going to go over here and do this. I'll keep doing this, but I'm going to go over here with Anton and do that also because I have to satisfy that part of myself. See, so you, you went across particularly to go and cut more pure blues records and to, do, and, and to make them more heavily harmonica-based. Talking about Tiger Man, I think that was your first solo album. Again, some some classic harmonica cuts on there. Or the song I really love on there is "Come Back, Baby." But you also do "Trust My Baby" by uh, by Sonny Boy. Uh, that's quite a, a brave song to take on, isn't it? <laughs> You know what? What about that song? And you know, and, and taking that one on. Well, the, really, the problem with that song for me is the singing. The harmonica is not bad, and the, and you don't really want to go in there trying to sound like Sonny Boy anyway. You know, you want to be sounding like yourself. That's how you do it. We do we do quite a few covers on that whole record. I will say that there's some pretty good chromatic harmonica on that record, and then uh, uh, when the lights go out, that Jimmy Witherspoon song. Yeah. That, that's a a really good performance. And uh, but and, and also the instrumentals are pretty good. You know, I was able. You know, in 1988. I stopped drinking. What's wild is that's when that, that's when we recorded that live Jimmy Rogers and actually the Nudella for Antones. 
I don't know when exactly that came out, but we recorded it. On, actually, we had recorded part of that in 87, I think. We didn't have quite enough studio stuff. And I was wondering what we were going to do with that. And then I was driving around California. I remember it was raining and I was playing all these Antone's anniversary tapes and this thing came on and I went, wow, well, that's pretty good. And then I said, you know, we can use that and that'll fill it out great. And it worked pretty well. You know, I think uh, that's right when I got sober, 1988. After that, things really progressed in a major way for me. You know, I, I think the only reason I was any good at all is because I had the harmonica in my mouth so much up until that time that, you know, I didn't lose too many chops. But after that, things, it became uh, more real music to me. And uh, I could take it more seriously. And I, I felt better about my own playing. And that gradually went on. You know, I, I'm not totally convinced about everything on that record, but it's not bad. And I, I could actually, when, when I hear stuff like when the lights go out and the instrumentals, I say, okay, that, that'll, that'll work. Um, the whole thing is you've got to realize something. Blues is a vocal music. It's not about the harmonica or the guitar or anything else. You've got to be able to deliver a song. For a white guy, that's not easy to do. So I think that over the years, I, I've, I've really come a long way to be, be able to sing this music. That was the beginning of it right there, 1988. I'd already been playing, what, 15 years, 14 years. Yeah. I still wasn't quite there yet in my mind, but some of that stuff works. And uh, that was a big, big uh, boost of confidence for me. You, so you had your own you had your own project, but you, the Thunderbirds kept going through all this time. You've always kept that, kept that going all the time, yeah? And they're still going strong now, the Thunderbirds, yeah? Oh, yeah. Lots of different incarnations, lots of different band members. So you mentioned earlier on you've done lots of touring. You've always toured a lot throughout your career. Yeah, that's been a big part. That's something you've been really passionate to do. You like to get out there on the road and play live. Of course. Yeah. What I'm doing now is I've got a big project that's for the T-Bridge coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to have a lot of really uh, high-profile guest artists. That's something I can let out now. But I'm, well, what we need to do is get the material together. My bass player... Steve Gomes, this guy's a hell of a songwriter. So uh, we put our heads together on, on a trip. About three or four days, he came out to the house, and uh, we came up with some pretty good stuff, and I've been writing a little bit since then as well. So, I mean, it's really kind of frustrating going yeah. through what we're going through right now because I'd be on the road. Luckily, I was able to do that blues band routine, and uh, at the end of February through mid-March, I was very satisfying. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we did that. And we had the blues cruise before that, then everything shut down. I feel for all these musicians who can't go out. It's really not, you could say it's about making a living, but that's not it. It's about, it tears a hole out of you. Yeah. Not to be able to perform in front of people or in the studio. You know, you sit at home and play, blah, blah, blah. That's okay. But it's very, very distressing not to be able to go play. Let's hope it, uh, like you say, it doesn't go on for too long and we see you back on the road, hopefully later this year. i got gigs booked in in, 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 in um, August right now, but yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. So going back to go, yeah. uh, you, you're playing live, uh, I wanted to ask you about your solo piece. You know, you, you generally do this solo piece uh, where you, you sort of start off with a band and then you go to do the chord uh, sort of tapping thing and then you do this solo piece. 
talk about that a little while and how you devised this solo piece of yours well I, I didn't really devise it I mean it just happened it happened one night and I didn't really do it for a while after that and then I decided you know that that went over pretty well most people have grandparents grandfathers who probably played the harmonica at some point it's a very portable instrument you could play it in the trenches the harmonica was really made for polkas. That's why the Germans developed it. They didn't even realize they had made something as crazy as this blues instrument that gone insane. So many people play it now. That beginning piece of the instrumental is just kind of kind of a polka type thing, except to a shuffle, and it's played to an amplifier. You know, you can hear me doing it in other things. I also have this other thing I do by myself on the encore where I'll do a Sonny Bo Williams song with a Sonny Bo Williamson song with a low F uh, with uh, welded together reed plates. I don't know if you've seen those Faliscos. Felisco does all my harmonicas. He does all of them. I, they, he's a genius. So he, he devised this thing, uh, this low F. Welded it's together it's two like reed plates. A double reed plate, as they call it. Is it one of those? It's like, a, I guess you could call it a double reed plate, it's, but it's not a double reed. It's not like a... Uh, no, it's just uh, put two reed plates, but with one reed going between yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah, I, know, yeah. I, I know about them. I've never actually tried one, but I keep meaning to try one of those. They're very loud. Yeah. They're great for acoustically. You can't, you can't bend them too much because they go flat so easily because the reed has much farther to travel through if you do bend it. So you've got to watch that. You know, that that song is, you know, a lot of chords by me. I, I play uh, Nine Below Zero on that. You can, you can, it's on YouTube all over the place. You can hear it. You know, the instrumental is, that's a, the instrumental, the fast instrumental is a very, very difficult thing to play right. You know, you have to relax. You ha- you can't be just flying around. And nothing worse than a hummingbird on methadrine. And that's what a lot of people sound like to me. You've got to relax. You've got to tell a story. You've got to have a sound. First and foremost, you have to have a sound. I think that is the thing about that solo piece is that, it is that it is quite relaxed. You know, you don't you don't like you said go too crazy on it. It keeps a very strong rhythm and it maintains interest though because it's like ten minutes, isn't it? So I think that's what's so strong about that solo piece that you do. Do you generally play? Is it more or less the same every time? It's never the same. No, it's never the same. I mean, there are little pieces of it that might work out to be the same. It's all improvised. And there's one, a couple little melodic things I might do in there. The the whole thing about it is. And this is how I learned how to play. You know, I, I, of course, I learned how to play from Little Walter. I learned how to play from George Smith, James Cotton, all the guys. And, and I would copy the solos. I wouldn't copy the solos and play them on the bandstand ever. But what I would do, because I realized this is going to be a very frustrating life if I don't make it my own. I would add little bits and pieces onto the solos that I copied. 
and little parts in the middle. I would, you know, tweak them a little bit. And then finally, they it all just kind of ran together. And, of course, here's another thing, too. You really have to have a lot of different influences, not just Walter. Walter, was, of course, was the greatest of all time and, and, and always will be. I've got the key to the highway. I don't see anybody going to beat him. If you got to know people like James Cotton and George Smith and both the Sonny Boys, I'm a big Rice Miller guy. That would really disturb Billy Bernardo because he hated Rice Miller. Slim Harpo, Lazy Lester, Big Walter, of course. Uh, you know, the whole thing is too really. I mean, you can go in and you can knock off licks, and that's fine. Uh, if you don't have a sound, forget the licks. Okay, you better work on a sound before you even pick, try and learn a lick. And but what you do is, yeah, after a certain point, you surround yourself with the music. So I do every day. I, I I listen to it, not just for enjoyment, but for it to totally soak in the attack. I got I got news for you people. Don't listen to one modern thing. I mean, I mean, there might be a couple things that I've done and a couple of other things that other people have done. But, but if you want to get deep into this music, you've got to go to the people who invented it. That's why I have a little more of an advantage along with a few other players because I've been able to work with those guys in person. And um, I loved them. So, you know, whether it be jazz, whether it be blues, Good old rock and roll, you know, Chuck Berry, Little Richard. Surround yourself with it. You don't need to sit there and study it. Usually the studying is done pretty much by the time you get to the point where you just listen to it for enjoyment. Actually, the studying is really never done. But to surround yourself with the music, get the vibe, get how they attack it. So, so, so important to get how they attack it. As you say, you listen to lots of the, lots of different sorts of music. You mentioned lots of the classic harmonica players there, but do you think you learnt on the bandstand as much as anything? Sounds like you know you were, you were out performing a lot from quite a young age. I learned on the bandstand, and I, you know, it was a funny thing with me. It was like the going to the trombone. I mean, I was literally I was in a band three months after I started playing because I could sing. So harmonica was kind of on the job training, and then. I was on the job <laughs> for yeah. like thousands of shows. Uh, yeah. Being highly self-medicated back then, I mean, it's a good thing I had that harmonica in my face. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing much right now. Back then, when you started out in the 70s playing, sounds like it was a great scene. I mean, have you any advice for bands now about how to get going and you know how to make it? Well, don't think about making it. Do it for enjoyment. Get out there. I would suggest this. Don't go to the jams unless you've got your own band and you can get up there with your own band and play the jam and play for, you know, three, five songs and get out of there. Yeah. Don't, unless the guys on the bandstand are high, high, high caliber. Otherwise, you're not going to get good. But, but as far as making it, I wouldn't even think about making it. Just think about doing the best that you can do. Just think about really saying something. So many people, you know, for one thing, you've got to realize something. People, a lot of people don't get it. A lot of people think that this stuff out here that they're hearing is what they're supposed to be listening to. 
And if, they're, if you're talking about blues, that ain't it. Compare yourself to the old guys. Don't compare yourself to anyone modern. If you can stack up to that, even remotely, you're doing something. Concentrate yeah. on a sound. Always yeah. on a sound first. You put a, a lot of store by that, you know, really having an identity, developing yourself, not going to jams. I think a lot of people do go to jams, don't they, thinking they might meet people, get a little bit of exposure. But for you, it's about developing your own sound and your own personality up there. I mean, you really have to play with people that are on the same page as you. That's, that's pretty difficult to find. But if you find somebody that's on the same page that might not be that great, they're still on the same page. They still have the same love for the same type of stuff that you do. You, you know, you can develop some great camaraderies and really learn a lot between each other, bouncing things back and forth. If you get, you know, one to, to four to five guys that, that all see it the same way. It's not easy to do, like I say. And, you know, lots of times these people happen early, early, early on. Don't yeah. listen to compliments ever. Compliments are very nice. I thrive on them. And, and what Muddy Waters said about me was incredible. If I would have rested my laurels on that, I would, it would have never happened for me. Play for enjoyment. Play to be a badass. To be the top of the food chain. So talking about your actual playing style, you know, it got a very full sound. You know, play octaves, it's got a big sound, great tone. Did you develop your style deliberately? Did it just come through from, you know, playing from all the guys that you love listening to? Yeah, it was trial and error, you know, listening to all the great people, playing along with all the great people, listening to the different kinds of sounds they got. You know, that's very, very important also. That flat, distorted attack, that's okay for maybe a, a song or two on a record, maybe a song or two during a night. That's not all of it. There's a richness to the harmonica that if you have too much distortion, you don't hear it. Little Walter is a prime example of that. And Little Walter had so many different kinds of sounds. Of course, I know that he played with through whatever was in the studio at the time. Whatever it was, he, he owned it. If, yeah. if he was getting a certain kind of sound that day, he owned it. It's, it's one thing, you know, when, when someone gives you, let's say you've got a rental gear somewhere and you're playing through an amp that you don't like. Well, you have to figure out a way to richen up that sound I was going to ask you about being the front man in the band, being the front man and being the singer. You know, how important do you think that is? It's the most important thing, period. Being a singer and a band leader is the most important thing. I take a lot of pride in not having a set list. I never use one, ever. And I know those guys know what I'm going to do. Somewhere the song before, I'll be, I'll be thinking of the next song. And depending on the audience, depending on what I want to play, depending on what I like, you know, and yes, you must learn how to sing. Otherwise, uh, there's no sense in doing it. Because like I told you before, it's a vocal music. So you, you did spend a lot of time developing your singing. As you said, you thought you got better further into your career. So you deliberately concentrated on your singing. Well, you know, a lot of that was on stage as well. When you can finally stand to listen to yourself on a recording, you know, you're, you're making some headway. <laughs> You have played with lots of different people, some some big names. You play with Bonnie Raitt a lot. You play with Eric Clapton, played with Buddy Guy. So have you enjoyed playing as a sideman with those guys? i I got to give a shout-out to Mark Knopfler. You know, I, I went over there to record with him, and uh, that was a fantastic experience. 
recording with Bonnie, of course, is she's just beautiful. She's just an incredibly wonderful human being. They've all been great to me. I have fun every time I go in. You play some blues chromatic. You play a lot of blues chromatic, some great stuff. What's your approach with blues chromatic and you know how maybe that differs from playing the diatonic? My approach is, you know, I kind of divide up George Smith and Little Walter. I'm, I'll use the button maybe a little more than either one of those guys. Yeah. Although I used to, I used to hear George play uh, Misty. Everybody says George is the king of the chromatic. I beg to differ. Little Walter is genius on the chromatic. Now, George was great, fantastic. To see George really, I mean, you had to see George live to really get the full gist of George. Back then, uh, he used to play through the PA. He didn't even have an app. He did have an app, but he didn't use it. He didn't use it on the gigs. He used it at the studio. His sound was incredible. He could play through the PA. Of course, PAs were cheaper back then, you know? (laughs) You could get a little distortion out of them. They sounded a lot better. Uh, A question I'm I'm asking each time is, if you had 10 minutes to practice, or if you were recommending somebody who only had 10 minutes to practice, what would you do in that 10 minutes? Well, it depends on what stage you're at already. If I had 10 minutes to practice and I was just a very, very beginner, I would... Learn how to tongue block pucker, tongue block pucker, tongue block pucker to make it sound exactly the same, depending on whatever hole you want to go in. And then I would work on trying to bend the note. And that would be it, you know. And a Felisco is going to hate me for this, but I do a lot of puckering. I do a lot of tongue blocking as well. I kind of added tongue blocking on the low notes later on in life. And I think that uh, there's certain... I guarantee you, little Walter did not tongue block all the time. Did not. I can hear it. And there's certain transitional notes that you can't get otherwise. Yeah. And there's certain ways the harmonica sounds that you can't get otherwise. You have to be able to get a lot of different sounds on the instrument. I think a lot of people listen to you. You know, you get got great tone and a big a big sound. A lot of people would would guess that you were tongue blocking all the time. So it's interesting to hear that you do switch between them quite often. So yeah, it shows that, like you say, puckering definitely has its place. I'll tell you something. I, I, I went to Felisco's class up in Chicago. I did that to him in front of the class. Okay, which one's tongue blocking, which one's a pucker? He couldn't tell the difference. And, you know, the way, so that means you have a whole wide variation of sounds that you can get that you didn't have by just tongue blocking. There's different ways to tongue block and get different sounds as well. But most people, they don't, you know, they just stop. The variation in sound is huge in the harmonica, as it is in the guitar or, or any other instrument. To go up there with a with a sure, hot CR <laughs> and get this kind of whatever it is, I don't even know what you call it, you know, you got a couple pedals up there. Hey, if you absolutely need a pedal, fine. I, I wouldn't have a pedal rack. I, every now and then I use a pedal. I have to because the kind of stuff that I rent, 
I, I can't fly with all with my gear. I have to rent things. It, it's it's a real struggle sometimes. Yeah. So that that's why I'm so well versed in this rental gear and getting a sound out of it thing. You're a harmonica of choice. I think you're a homer on Dorsey. Is that right? I am a homer in Dorsey. Yes. Joe Fliskell's so. um, custom harmonicas exclusively. Do you? Yes. And uh, the marine bands, uh, we we experimented with the type of wood. I, I like the pair of wood for me. I like them uh, with just intonation because, you know, I play in a traditional fashion. A lot of chords. You don't want to have a lot of chord dissonance. You want to you want to have something rich. You know, he, but he still, I use the pair of wood, like I say. He, he puts, uh, he does his thing to them. He seals them. Uh, yeah. I'll send them back to him when they wear out. So you you play but, uh, the, the the older style marine bands, and you don't play the, the the deluxe or the crossovers. It's the old style ones, and, and Joe uh, Joe customizes those for you. Yeah, he starts out with actually pre-war sometimes. Looks like to me, right. but uh, with for me, which is fantastic. Uh, the new harmonicas, I like the action on the crossover. To me, that's the best action out of out of all the new ones. Yeah. Play the uh, the Honus 64 as your your chromatic of choice. That's mainly I've I've been going to I've been trying to go to the the smaller ones. The, the one I got that I like the action of better than any of them, but I don't I'm not as crazy about the sound is the CX12. Uh, the problem with that harmonica is you can't tell where the end of the damn harmonica is. But, but you know you just got to work on it, find it. I, I'm noticing that the chords. On the CX-12 are not as rich as on the metal harmonica, yeah, but, the, but the octaves are nice. And, uh, I was just playing one of those, and it, they, they sound good. So the, obviously that's a 12-hole. So a lot, of, a lot of when you're playing the blues chromatic, obviously that they play the 64, the 16-hole, you get those, those big octaves. Those octaves are the lower octave as well, with that richer sound, but you're playing yeah. the 12-hole as well now. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing about those. You know, and, I, and luckily, Felisco had made me a couple of old ones. So that's what I use. I don't use the new ones. Do you have a favorite key of diatonic harmonica? You know, I like everything from A flat to C. I like those keys. I I, I use a I use a D harmonica sometimes. I usually use that on uh, well on certain things. Uh, then it starts getting good uh, on the on the uh, acoustic end of it when D end up. You know, I I don't use a high F. Anymore, I just don't see any. I know Sonny Boy used them a lot. I just don't find the need for it in what I do. When I used to go to the gig with the Thunderbirds, I'd bring one harmonica, an A, and that was it. And I could yeah. play an E, A, and B with that. That, that was fine. But, yeah. you know, when I go out with the blues band, and, and still, I do it today. I, I, I use mainly, uh, I use a C every now and then with the Thunderbirds, but, you know, most of the time, an A, maybe a B flat. I got them all up there. Maybe, a, 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 you know, when I, um, I'll go out in the audience with the, with the Sunny Boy high note thing, and uh, so I use a G also. It depends on the room. Do you play any different tunings, or do you use overblows at all? I don't. Uh, no, I don't use overblows. I can do it a little bit, but I just don't see any sense in it for me. 
uh, you know, if you wanted to play every note on a diatonic harmonica, well, then just get a chromatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I play every so. note on them either. Uh, be honest with you, I, and, and Kim Fields, I don't know if you know who that is. He's a great harmonica player, lives up in the Portland area. Portland, Oregon. I've known him for many, many years. He turned me on to a guy named Don Less. Don Less is the guy who invented that. He invented the overblow. He could yeah. really do it. I mean, really do it. I, you know, in my mind, and I might get some letters about this, but I haven't heard a great practitioner of overblow notes. I Because what you have to sacrifice to get an overblow is you have to change the harmonica and yeah. seat the reeds deeper into the into the uh, a slot and and you you sacrifice sound you know i just don't see it like i say yeah you know mike turk is an incredible chromatic player hey see if he's got online lessons or find somebody who's got who gives online chromatic lessons it's a wonderful instrument you know but i might do it myself yeah i i like i say i haven't heard a great practitioner of overblows uh, not to mention that you know most people who overblow they don't. They don't play to a chord. They play to A440. So it takes the chords out of the blues music right there. Chords are everything in that. So yeah. I think uh, for me, no. So so what about your favorite amp? You've, you've talked there that you're obviously you're, you're touring a lot, so you often just use whatever amps available to you. A bit like Little Walter. Do you, do you have a, a favorite amp? I've got uh, a lot of really great amps. I've got. Uh, my favorite amp is my uh, my 59 basement that I got in 1972. I bought it in a store. I was with Luther Tucker at the time, and uh, they must have had 25 of them just lined up for input. There are probably a couple two inputs in there. I don't really like the two input as much. But I've had this amp for many, many, many years, and then I got another one from Big John, so sometimes I'll use two of those. And it's a pretty big sound. But in, in the studio, I use my old Gibson's. A lot of old, small stuff. Yeah. I mean, you can't go in the studio using a super reverb or a twin or something. It just doesn't work out. I also own one of, I don't have a letter of authenticity, but uh, I own one of Little Walter's amps. Oh, really? And uh, I, own a, I, own a, I own two Dan Electro Commandos. One of them was retreated. It sounds very good. The other one, I don't know how Big John did this. You know, I... Y'all probably know who Big John Atkinson is out there. He's with, he's an incredible musician and kind of a throwback. That's why we get along so well. But he found this. He went down to Atlanta. I don't know if you ever heard of Grady Fats Jackson, sax player, but he was on the road with Little Walter, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he died. And Grady Fats Jackson's basement was a commando with the original cloth cover, which with the original tweed everything now that's not made for a sax player to play through that's little walter's amp yeah that's little walter's amp yeah and I, it, it sounds really great too i don't get to use it very much you know because i have so, so many studio amps that i use yeah so when you play that amp do you sound can you get little walter's tone you know clo- at least closer closer to little walter's tone uh, you can get a little more uh yeah yeah you can a little bit Tone is a variable thing. Tone is a physical thing. You know, it's not really, it doesn't really matter what amp you use. 
But yeah, you know, I mean, Little Walter, he got a very rich, cleaner sound sometimes. And uh, you would think that this Dan Electro would break up like crazy. It doesn't really. It's it's eight eights, and it's a uh, you have to really crank it up. They're pretty loud amplifiers. And for the time, I would imagine they were the one one of the louder ones on the bandstand for for back then. Yeah, I used it on a recording. I actually have, I've got a new recording coming out that that I don't think it's going to have the any of that amp on it. But in the future, there'll be some coming out with that on it. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, what about microphones? What's your microphones of choice? Uh, a T3. I use yeah. a lot of different mics too, but usually a live, I use a T3. I use uh, I was using a ceramic element in a JT30 recently. That didn't sound too bad. That was fairly clean as well, but I liked it. But I use all the static mics. I don't use any chewers. I don't use uh, any of these custom. You know, I like stock. Yeah, I mean, the crystals then. Yeah, I, I've gotten used to that. You know, I've got a magical T3 that just sounds beautiful. I I can't get, I, I I'm not even sure if it's the original element in it, but it's it is a a something eleven, something eleven. That's that's the name of the crystal. That's but okay. you know, I, I have I have uh, I got I get a lot of my mics from Dennis Grunling. In fact, the last few years I've been getting all my mics from him. Yeah, I bought a I bought a crystal from him uh, last year actually, and it is a great it's a great mic. Yeah, uh, really pleased with it. Yeah. So yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, he, he does. I don't know where he finds them all, but he does, doesn't he? <laughs> um, yeah, when he gets, uh, you know, sometimes the crystals are worn out, and he has to put he might put new old stock in there. Yeah, he's got some old brush elements that he puts in that are that work well. But I, I love this T3 that I have. I have several of them. I have a lot of microphones, a lot. <laughs> yeah, way too many microphones. Effects pedals. You you say you don't you don't really favor them. Then do you not? Do you, do you use effects pedals at all? I, I use. I've got one from Australia. It's a Clinch uh, FX, what they call a burnish boost, and I like that. And then I also use uh, every now and then I'll use a uh, a Kinder anti feedback. But I'll tell you something about the Kinder thing; it's just too distorted. It's just you need to turn the thing all the way down. It's too distorted. I I, I kind of favor the Clinch FX box. Thanks very much. Just to finish off, then, uh, as you say, um, you're hoping to be back out on the road. You've got some gigs booked for August. Hopefully, you can get back out doing those. So yeah, hopefully you'll be. You'll be able to do those again um, from then. Have you anything else particularly lined up? Uh, well, you know, I've got pretty much what I want, and, and as as long as I'm able to do it, you know, I I love going out with the blues band as well. So we'll see what happens there, and yeah. uh, I'd love plans? to play in the UK sometime relatively soon. Any yeah, any plans to come to Europe? Have you anything booked for Europe at the moment? At this stage, no, no. I've Everything's playing, on hold. Yeah, I've seen you play in London, so yeah, hopefully see you across in London again uh, in the not too distant future. So thanks very much, Kim. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. That's it for today, folks. Final word from my sponsor, the Lone Wolf Blues Company, providing some great effects pedals and microphones, all purpose built for the harmonica. Be sure to check out their website.